In Isaiah's day, the kingdom of Judah was a striking fit to Paul's description of people in the last days, when he said in 2 Timothy 3.5, they will be holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. That describes Judah. I need you to understand that my heart breaks for Israel when I read stuff like we read tonight. And that though Scripture calls out Israel, calls out Judah, calls out the Jewish people, and indicts them for their behavior, this is not judgment coming from me. But it is judgment coming from the Lord, and it is true and it is accurate. And the people of Judah in Isaiah's day, they held to a form of godliness. They had the temple. They had the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. They had all the promises. They had the prophets. They had Jerusalem. All of it was there for them. They had a a wonderful form of godliness. They kept the festivals and the feasts. They kept Sabbath. They had a form of godliness, but they denied its power. And you see this clearly, in fact, we see this, I think, clearly in our own lives when we're under any kind of threat, that's when we tend to deny the power of God. You know, when, when our life gets challenged or when things get difficult, the denial of power. And in verse 1 of Isaiah 30, he says, Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan but not mine, and make an alliance but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin. That is the biblical recipe for powerless living. You know, execute a diplomatic uh, liaison with the world. But don't make an alliance with God's Spirit. If you want to live powerlessly in in these days, that's how you do it. And from verse 1, it just goes downhill from there all the way down to Egypt. Verse 2, They who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me, to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt your humiliation. For their princes are at Zoan, and their ambassadors arrive at Hanes. Everyone will be ashamed because of a people who cannot profit them, who are not for help or profit, but for shame and also for reproach. Now, there's one response Isaiah's prophecy would have prompted from the political hacks in Judah. He's on to us. He knows. How did he figure it out? Our clandestine military alliance with Egypt. How did he know we were heading down there? It's marvelous. God just nails them. In verse 4, he even exposes the locations of their dangerous liaisons. The very cities in the Nile Delta to which this group are headed down to Zoan and Hanes. God says, I know where you're going. I know you're heading down there. I can tell you where you're going, where the cities are. In a minute, he's going to tell us exactly what the entourage looks like heading down there. He sees it all. And if these devious diplomats had been listening to Isaiah, even briefly, they might have realized that making an alliance down in Zoan was a stupid idea. What makes you say that? Well, previously in Isaiah 19, verse 11, he said the princes of Zoan are mere fools. You want to make an alliance with fools? It says the advice of Pharaoh's wisest advisors has become stupid. How can you say to Pharaoh, I'm a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? Well then, where are your wise men? Isaiah is calling out Egypt in Isaiah 19. Where are your wise men? Sound familiar? 
Paul asks the same question. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God makes the distinction so clear between Egypt and glory. Egypt is a place for fools. I'm not not being anti-Egyptian here. The picture drawn up in Scripture is this is a foolish place to go. It is foolish to put your hope in man, in any man, anywhere. But Egypt happens to be the picture here. Why seek the foolishness of the world when we can have the wisdom of God? Well, I don't do that. Do you read the newspaper? Do you read books written by man? Do you go to counselors who are human? Do you ask the advice of this person, that person, and the other person when you haven't even had a moment to sit down and say, Lord, what do you think about this situation? You see, it's going down to Egypt. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13 says, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as His counselor has informed Him? With whom did He consult, and who gave Him understanding? And who taught Him in the path of justice, and taught Him knowledge, and informed Him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, He lifts up the islands like fine dust. Any wisdom on Whidbey? Wisdom on Fidalgo? We're like dust compared to the wisdom of the Lord. And Paul says in that verse, you'll hear it a couple of times tonight, Who has known the mind of the Lord that He will instruct him? Paul's quoting Isaiah, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. But Paul says, But we have the mind of Christ. Perfect wisdom in Jesus, not in the world. And by the way, that's not arrogance to say we have the mind of Christ. It's assurance. Now, in addition to outing the cities of secret meetings, Zoan and Haines, the Lord even has Isaiah describe the journey south. Verse 6. The oracle concerning the beasts of the Negev. Through the land of distress and anguish, from where comes lioness and lion, viper and flying serpent, they carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasures on camel's humps to a people who cannot profit them, even Egypt, whose help is vain and empty. Therefore I have called her Rahab, who has been exterminated. Get the picture? These deluded delegates in their ancient SUVs camels and donkeys right and they're headed out there and they're all loaded up with political payoffs and treasures for treaty and the Lord says not only do I know what you're doing and where you're going but I know the outcome you are going down to Rahab Hem Shabet that's the Hebrew Rahab who has been exterminated. Literally, Rahab him Shabet, there at the end of verse 7, is Rahab who sits there. <laughs> That's it. That's the translation. You're going down to Rahab who sits there, or Rahab the do-nothing, or Rahab the futile. In other words, Isaiah is using this wordplay to show how, how completely senseless this is. Rahab, by the way, was a goddess of confusion and chaos according to the uh, ancient Ugaritic belief. The uh, Ugarit was in, I think, northern Syria, that region. And they had a belief in this goddess, 
Rahab, who was kind of like the female version of Leviathan, so she was a, a she-sea monster. And she was this goddess, and she created chaos everywhere she went. But she was overcome in the creation of the world. All of her chaos, all of her confusion was overcome when the world was created in an orderly fashion. Now that's pagan mythology. Not that the world was created, but that Rahab was anywhere around or had anything to do with it. But what he's doing here, and the reason why he draws this out, using mythology in his prophecy, is Isaiah's taken hold of a known cultural myth. Everyone in the day knew who Rahab was. It's kind of like us saying Zeus. You'd know who Zeus was. You'd know what Zeus represents. And so he says, it's like Rahab. I mean, it's like you're going to her for help. A, she doesn't even exist. But B, even if she did, she's confusion and chaos and disorder. And Egypt's power to bring order to Judah's problem is equivalent to that of mythical Rahab. You know, the world is full of vain ideologies, foolish philosophies, and empty alliances. Only the Almighty, all-powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing, and eternal God can help. He's the only one who can save. Numbers 23.19 tells us, Has He said, and will He not do it? Has He spoken, and will He not make good? So what God is saying to the rebellious children, to Judah, is He's saying, Look, if you're going to count on anyone, count on Me. Because I won't let you down. But you're choosing to go hang out with Rahab the do-nothing. Verse 8, Now go, write it on a tablet before them, and inscribe it on a scroll, that it may serve in the time to come as a witness forever. For this is a rebellious people. False sons. Sons who refuse to listen to the instruction, or literally Torah, of the Lord. Who say to the seers, You must not see. And to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. (laughs) Prophesy illusions. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Wow. It's a stinging indictment. In fact, Buchsfazen calls this one of the most severe indictments of Israel ever uttered by a prophet. They're saying, don't tell us the truth. We don't want the truth. We don't want to hear the truth. And by the way, we don't want anything to do with the God of truth. In essence, this is what they're saying. In verse 12, therefore, thus says Kadosh Israel, the Holy One of Israel, since you have rejected this word and have put your trust in oppression and guile and have relied on them, therefore, this iniquity will be to you like a breach about to fall. A bulge in a high wall whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant. Whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar so ruthlessly shattered that a sherd will not be found among its pieces to take fire from a hearth or to scoop water from a cistern. You're going to be like a smashed piece of pottery. Remember just, I think it was last week, a couple chapters back. He says, shall the clay talk back to the potter? And now he's saying, Judah, you're like a bunch of pots. You've been made by God. You're about to get shattered. So much so that even a piece of the pot won't be of any value or use whatsoever. Now, the judgment of the collapse of Judah didn't happen right away. If you know your history, and we've talked about this, you know Assyria did not take down Judah. It would be a century before Babylon finally raises Jerusalem to the ground. 
before they finally come in and sweep the people away like a mighty flood. But he says here, and note this, verse 13 says, whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant. But it didn't. Was the prophet wrong? You know God's timing is not our timing. His timing is always different than mine. And words like suddenly and phrases like in an instant don't imply immediacy as much as they imply suddenness. What do you mean? There would be some in Judah who would hear this prophecy and after a couple of months, maybe a year goes by, five years, ten years go by and they go, look, we're fine. The prophet was wrong. He said, suddenly, in an instant, this was going to happen, and all this time has gone by, and Isaiah must have just been a little wound up, because nothing has happened like he said it would. Listen, the Lord often, in our lives, moves very, very slowly, laying out plans, preparing for future events and dates, things that that will happen. He sets things in motion until the right time comes, and then he moves suddenly. At least that's been my experience. And that seems to be the biblical example. He moves slowly until everything is right and then boom, it happens. So when you see words like suddenly and in an instant, it's absolutely true. When Babylon came down on Judah, it was sudden and overwhelming and instantaneous. It would take a hundred more years for God to allow Judah to get to the place where their sin had completely overtaken before he would have that sudden downfall. God is purposeful and then precipitous. He moves slowly before He moves quickly. I I thought about that because the revelation of Jesus is very much that way. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His bondservants the things which must soon take place. And some people, preterists, come to mind and they say A.D. 70 was the fall of Jerusalem because John said the things must soon take place. So they had to take place soon, right? Immediately, right away. No, that's not the timing of the Lord. Besides the fact, words like soon or Revelation 22.12, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. It's the same word, by the way. Soon and quickly are both the same root word in the Greek, taxe. Or 2 Peter 3.4 where we hear the mockers saying, where is the promise of His coming? He said He'd come. said He was coming quickly. And He hasn't. But understand that the soon or the quick coming of Jesus means that when He comes, it will be sudden. When He mounts up on the white horse, He will be here immediately. And that's what He's talking about. That's even what the word in the Greek implies. The soon, the quickness. I'm coming quickly means the second I step out of heaven to be there, I will be there fast. (laughs) It will happen with great rapidity. Very quickly. And it's the same thing in our lives. Again, the Lord seems sometimes slow in response, but know this, when He responds, it will seem sudden because His timing is always perfect. Never assume that a lack of overt motion means that God isn't moving. Oh, He's moving. And when the timing is right, it will be quick. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37 tells us, For in yet a very little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay. You can count on it. He will come and He will come quickly. Now verse 15, we read on Sunday this, this section here. 
For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing. And you said, No, for we will flee on horses, therefore you shall flee. We will ride on swift horses, therefore those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand will flee at the threat of one man. You will flee at the threat of five until you're left as a flag on a mountaintop and as a signal on a hill. Therefore the Lord waits or longs to be gracious to you. And therefore He waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long or wait for Him. And if you haven't heard that teaching from Sunday, go back and listen to it. It's one of the most vital things the Lord has shown me in years of of following Him. The importance of finding our strength in quietness and trust. I'm not going to get strength somewhere else. And that repentance and rest are key to our salvation. And and we talked about Sunday. How do you rest but get the work done? And see, that's the point. If you're resting in the Lord, the work gets done. He accomplishes all things. If we will but trust Him, be quiet in Him, rest in Him. And again, that's online to listen to if you want to listen to it. But going on from there and continuing in this train of thought, the Lord says, O people in Zion... Inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When He hears it, He will answer you. Although the Lord has given you the bread of privation and the water of oppression, He, your teacher, and you might want to circle your teacher, will no longer hide Himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right or to the left. A couple of things about this. First of all, why would God, a loving God, give the bread of privation, that is adversity or hardship, and the water of oppression? Why would He do that? Back in 2008, you may remember Bill Maher came out with his movie, Religious, uh, mocking, literally, religion. Uh, really putting down faith all over the world, all kinds of different faith, not just Christianity, but he, he targeted Christianity too as just being completely foolish and, and irrelevant, his movie Religious. And in that movie, one of the things that was asked, and I, was just, I watched a couple of clips today, I didn't, couldn't stomach the whole thing, but one of the things that was asked is the, the typical question often you hear, why would a loving God harm His people? Why would a loving God allow hurt and pain and hardship in the world? And there are many actual good, solid biblical answers to that. One of them is just simply sin in the world. But another reason, and specifically with Israel, why would God give them, and we're told, He gave them the bread of adversity. He gave them the water of oppression. He made it hard on them. Still does, by the way. Why would He do this? Because, gang, He is a teacher. He is teacher. He's the one who says, come and learn of me and I will give you rest. If you want to seek rest and relaxation, a little R&R in anything or anyone else, you're not going to find it. And with Israel, He gave them the bread of privation to teach them this. By the way, this is the only place in the entire Hebrew Bible where God is called teacher. It's the only place. But what's interesting is it's teacher in the plural form. It is talking about God because the context tells us very clearly 
that He is the teacher. The Lord has given you the bread of formation and the water of oppression. Your teachers will no longer hide Himself, but your eyes will behold your teachers. Which would be bad English if we didn't know or understand something of the triunity of God. The context tells us this is the Lord. The Lord is the teacher in plurality, which is not a mystery because we understand there are three aspects of His being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And of course, Jesus in the flesh is the great teacher, the great rabbi, the best teacher ever to walk the face of the earth. Keep your finger there and skip ahead. I just have to show you this. I can't wait till Isaiah 48. But go over there, Isaiah 48, and look at this. The idea of the triune God, it's not new to the New Testament. Isaiah was talking about this 700 years before it happened. Moses mentions it in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, but we'll have to talk about that another time. You can just note that if you want to. Isaiah 48, verse 12. Watch this. Listen to me, he says, O Jacob, even Israel whom I called. I am He. I am the first. I am also the last. Okay, so we know who's talking here, right? This is the Lord. Skip down to verse 16. Watch this. Come near to me. Listen to this. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. Now the Lord God has sent me and His Spirit. You see that? The Lord God, Father, has sent me, Jesus, and His Spirit, the Holy Spirit. All three are absolutely and clearly referred to here in the nature of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why is Jesus the one who's saying, listen to me, O Jacob, I am He, I am the first, I am the last? Because as Peter tells us, the Spirit of Christ is the one talking to Isaiah. So we have this amazing statement here of the Trinity. Our teacher, our Father who teaches us, our Jesus who teaches us, the Spirit who teaches us, who brings to remembrance all things that Jesus told us, who does not leave us without a word in season, who continues to teach us as Jesus says, come and learn of me. He is our teachers. And He's the one who says, this is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right or to the left. This is the way, the Lord says, the Lord speaks, this is the way, walk in it. The Bible is absolutely clear that God speaks to His people. It's what the Word tells us. But people keep asking me, same question I asked many times across my life, how can I hear His voice? I mean, what are we talking about here? I want, I love the idea that my teacher says, this is the way walking it, but I have never heard an audible voice tell me. Now, I have. This church wouldn't be here if I hadn't heard a clear word from the Lord that we should be here. Oh, well, Rick, so you're just holier than... No. <laughs> Hearing the Lord doesn't make... You know, let me just say something else. Side note here. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit on Sundays every now and then, and someone brought up an interesting concern, and that was the whole issue of, well, if you're talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, I'm worried that people are going to be judged who don't have certain gifts. Not here. Not here. Gifts don't make you better. 
that would be me looking at my kids on Christmas morning and going, well, David got a little John Deere tractor, and Naomi got a Barbie. David's obviously the better child. He's got the better gift, you know. Well, from my perspective, because I wouldn't want a Barbie. <laughs> but no, the, the gifts and here and all these things that, that we use to kind of stack up our self-righteousness, none of it makes us righteous, gang. God's grace makes us righteous, period. And anything other than that, if someone has the gift of tongues, or the gift of healing, or the gift of teaching, it doesn't stack people up against each other. They're just gifts for the body to use for the Lord, right? Otherwise, and in that, we are all the same. It's just God has chosen this person for this and that person for that. That's the way it works. And coming back to this, this whole idea of, well, I haven't heard God speak. Am I less spiritual? No, you're not less spiritual. You just haven't heard Him speak yet. And that's okay. He's dealing with you in a different way than He has dealt with others. Turn in your Bibles over to 1 Kings 19. You're going to go left. And just keep going. You get to 1 Kings 19. I believe that God gave us this story in Scripture to teach us how to listen to Him. I think it's the primary reason that we have this here. And the way it comes down. 1 Kings 19, verse 9. Watch this. Talking about Elijah. Elijah's on the run. Elijah who's just slain 400 prophets of Baal. Major bloodbath. Tough guy. Yeah. Go Elijah. And then he hears that Jezebel is upset with him, and so he runs for his life. Which, yeah, wise man. Which just shows you, ladies, how scared we really are of you. Okay. So Jezebel says, I'll have your head by tomorrow. He takes off running. For 40 days and 40 nights, he travels south. He ends up in Midian at Mount Horeb, the Mount of God, where Moses had been given the Ten Commandments. He goes up onto Mount Horeb, he finds a cave, he tucks himself into the cave, and he just sits there moaning and weeping and pathetic and suicidal. And in verse 9, we're told he came to the cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountain and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. And let me just tell you, if you have an NASB Bible, you need to just mark out a gentle blowing. Because it's completely mistranslated. It's a bad translation. I don't normally say that about the New American Standard Bible. It's a very good Bible. Very literate. But not, or literal, but not in this case. Sound of a gentle blowing makes it sound like a natural occurrence. This was not a natural occurrence. The literal words in the Hebrew are still small voice. As the King James translates it correctly. And you can look up the Hebrew words, but they're very, very clear. A still small voice. We're not talking about just the breeze. The Lord began to speak. 
When Elijah heard, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now why why is that in there? I mean, that's just a weird little occurrence. A weird, weird little personal thing that happened between Elijah and the Lord. Why do the rest of us need to hear that? Because I believe that God is teaching us. And listen, He's not going to be heard in your striving. He is not going to be heard in the hustle. He's not going to be heard on the fly. As you're racing out the door on your way to work or to pick up the kids or to get to the grocery store, I've got a few minutes, think I'll pray, you know? And I'm not saying you shouldn't pray in all seasons and at all times. What I'm saying is if you want to hear the Lord, what He tells us, what His Word shows us by example, is He is best heard in quiet. Not in the earthquake, not in the fire, not in the whirlwind, in the quiet. Which is why it was so important and profound what we talked about Sunday. In quietness and in trust is your strength. And if we can't dial down and get quiet, we're not going to hear it. He is best heard in quietness. Now let me take this a step further. There are no shortcuts for hearing the Lord. There's no shortcut. You can't go, okay... Here's the methodology, and if you thought I was going to give it to you, (laughs) I'm not. If you're ready to write down three steps to hearing the Lord so I can go home and hear Him tonight, it's not how it works. Here's the bottom line. You start with His Word. You want to hear the Lord tonight? You are. Your Bible's open. You are hearing the Word of the Lord. You're hearing Him. Don't undermine or underestimate the value of this book. And of the fact that you are hearing God's Word spoken to you through the Bible. And that is profoundly important for us, gang. You start with His Word. And the more you are in His Word, the more familiar, you've heard me say before, the more familiar you are with His voice. The more you know His Word. The more you know what He's going to say. The more when you do hear Him, you'll immediately know, this is the Lord, this is not me. It's not me just making up something in my head. This is God. This is the kind of stuff He says. I know this because I've been listening to His Word for a long time. Watch how this works. The three words in the Greek, and it's worth jotting down if you're taking notes. The first word is grapho. Grapho is Scripture. Or graphe. It's where we get our words graphic from. Graphic artists, okay? Or to graph something. Graphe, grapho in the Greek is the scriptures. We see it in John 5.39. You search the scriptures, graphe. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. The written word of God, the graphe. Start there. I want to hear from the Lord. You can open up your Bible. You will hear from the Lord. Every time. You start there. From there then comes the second word, rima which is the spoken word. R-H-E-M-A, if you're writing that down. Rima. It's the spoken word of God. Romans 10.17 tells us faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That is the Rima of Christ. It takes faith to hear the spoken word of Jesus. So in quietness and trust, 
and stillness, but also by faith. But faith comes by hearing the Word of Christ, but before you even get there, you need to search the Scriptures so you're familiar with His voice. Graphe leading to Rima, and finally, the third word is the Logos, which is the divine reason. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In John 1.14, the Word, Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. The Logos. This is what I believe Paul is talking about when he says we have the mind of Christ. Now, I've had this conversation with people before, and actually in kind of an argument form, someone was saying, well, the Rima is more important to be able to hear God speak rather than you know the graphe or the Logos or anything like that. I disagree. I think here's the pattern. You have the Word, the graphe of God. You have the Rima. God does speak to His people, but far vastly more wonderful and important than either of the other two is the Logos, that is the mind of Christ. What am I saying here? I'm saying that we need the Logos. We need the Word behind us saying this is the way, walk in it. It's not just something we read. And it's not just a voice we hear audibly. Some people place that as a high watermark of spirituality, being able to hear audibly the Lord. There's a higher one. And it is having the divine Word of God abiding within you, Jesus Himself. And when Jesus abides in me, I know where to go when I'm paying attention. And I may not hear it audibly at all. Some people never hear God speak audibly, but they hear the Logos, Jesus abiding in them, and they just know what's right. And they just know where He's leading. And sometimes we even use it in our language. You know, we say, you know, this last week the Lord told me to do this. Really? You heard Him? Not audibly. But yeah, I heard Him. How? He abides in me. The Logos... Listen, this is why it's not a shortcut. Because we're not talking about a spoken word. We're not talking about a written word. We're talking about the divine word, which is someone we know personally. And the only way to know Jesus personally is to take the time to get to know Him. To walk with Him. That takes time. That takes years. That takes relationship. Why does He do it that way? Because He wants relationship with us. This is His desire, that we walk in relationship with Him. There are no shortcuts to a real relationship, and there are no shortcuts to hearing the divine Word of God, to hearing Jesus as He resonates and speaks, even from within your own heart. So I would say to you, my advice, get into the Bible. Get quiet. Wait on the Lord. Pursue relationship with Him. And watch what happens. Watch what happens. Verse 22 in Isaiah 30. You can go back there. Watch what happens. When you are hearing the Word of the Lord spoken to you, when you recognize He's saying, this is the right way, walk in it, go this way, go that way. Verse 22 says, And you will defile your graven images overlaid with silver. And your molten images plated with gold. You will scatter them as an impure thing and say to them, Be gone! You see, the more I know Jesus, the more I grow accustomed to His Word, the more I toss out the shams and the counterfeits of the world. I don't want that stuff anymore. Because I'm listening to Jesus now. So all these idols and these other things, get them out, throw them out. I don't need them. Verse 23, Then He will give you rain for the seed which you will sow in the ground. 
and bread from the yield of the ground. And it will be rich and plenteous on that day. Your livestock will graze in roomy pasture. By the way, seed, bread, pictures of the Word of God at work in your life, sustaining you. Your livestock's out there grazing in roomy pasture, pastoral setting here, verse 24. Also the oxen and the donkeys which work the ground will eat salted fodder which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. And salted fodder, I guess, if you're an ox or a donkey, is good, tasty. Okay. Verse 25, On every lofty mountain and on every high hill there will be streams running with water. The land it just grows more fertile. The flocks, the herds, they're well fed. Things will go well for Israel even as they're casting out the false gods and the idols and the towers around them which, by the way, are now crumbling down at the same time. Verse 25 continues, On the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Verse 26, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. And the light of the sun will be seven times brighter like the light of seven days on the day the Lord binds up the fracture of His people and heals the bruise He has afflicted. Do you see what just happened? We just slipped into the future. He's just taken us into a better place. Not the return of the exiles from Babylon. Not the Jewish people coming back to the land in 1948. This is a day when the sun is seven times brighter. Okay, supernatural stuff going on. And this is the day when He heals the bruise that He's inflicted on His people Israel. Verse 27, Behold, the name of the Lord comes from a remote place. And note that the name of the Lord and the Lord are the same thing. The name of the Lord just speaks of the nature of God. God moving. And so He comes from a remote place, burning in His anger and dense is His smoke. His lips are filled with indignation and His tongue is like a consuming fire. Well, Hebrews 12.29 tells us our God is a consuming fire. Isaiah verse 28, continuing, His breath is like an overflowing torrent which reaches to the neck to shake the nations back and forth in a sieve and to put in the jaws of the peoples the bridle which leads to ruin. You will have songs as in the night when you keep the festival. Now he's turning, he's talking to Judah again. And gladness of heart as when one marches to the sound of a flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause His voice of authority to be heard. I'll tell you what, if you don't hear the Lord right now, you will! Everybody's going to hear His voice thunderous and resounding in that day. And the descending of His arm to be seen in fierce anger and in the flame of a consuming fire in cloudburst, downpour, and hailstones. For at the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be terrified. We've just gone back in time. We're kind of doing some jumping around with Isaiah. Assyria will be terrified when he strikes with the rod. And every blow of the rod of punishment which the Lord will lay on him will be with the music of tambourines and lyres. I love the contrast. And in battles, brandishing weapons, he will fight them. For Tophet has long been ready. Indeed, it has been prepared for the king. He has made it deep and large, a pyre of fire with plenty of wood. The breath of the Lord, like a torrent of brimstone, sets it afire. And what's going on here? The picture that we read down through these verses is two simultaneous events. One, the people of Israel dancing and singing and praising the Lord and worshiping, bound up the fractures or heels so that they can now dance in the Lord. And that's going on. And at the same time, judgment. 
this simultaneous event that will happen. Well, why is Assyria mentioned here? I'll tell you why at the end when we get there. But it's a simultaneous event of the coming of Jesus Christ that will be for the binding up of Israel and their ultimate joy and the judgment of the nations and the ultimate demise of all those who rebel against the Lord. And note this in verse 33. Tophet has long been ready. Indeed, it has been prepared for the king. Tophet sat at the southeastern end of the Hanam Valley. If you were to stand on the Temple Mount today, the Kedron Valley runs down this way, and the Hanam Valley runs down this way. They basically encircled the city of David. Temple Mount's up here. city of David is out in front of you. Here comes the Hanam. Here's the Kedron. The Hanam runs into the Kedron, and the Kedron heads off that way. Right down there in that southwest corner was Tophet. Valley of Tophet. Bible students, what happened in the Valley of Tophet? Do you remember? Gehenna. Gehenna, what happened there at Tophet itself, specifically? What, what? Sacrifices. Sacrifices. Child sacrifices. The Valley of Tophet was where the idol to the god Molech rested. Big iron-bellied god with a, with a belly as a furnace. Her furnace was, was the belly, and they would lay children on the arms of red-hot arms of Molech, and they would sizzle and fall into the fire, and that was sacrifice. And it happened at Tophet. And so Jesus takes this. He comes along, and in his day, Tophet was no longer a place of idolatry. Tophet was a trash dump that was burning all the time, smoldering. That was the city dump from Jerusalem. So there's always smoke smoldering down there at that far southeastern end of the Hinnom Valley. Gehenna. And so that's where Jesus took the, the Hinnom Valley, Gehenna as the picture, for hell. What are we talking about here? This symbol for hell, Tophet, the Hinnom Valley, this picture for hell, is a place prepared for a king. Not the king. A king. The king, little k, the ruler of this world, none other than Satan, Matthew 25.41 says, He will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And verse 33, Tophet is ready. Tophet has long been ready as a place prepared for the king, which is Satan. Don't confuse Satan with Jesus here because Tophet is not prepared for Jesus to go get burned. But hell has been prepared for the devil and his angels. If someone says, why would God create hell for me? Just tell him, he didn't. He created hell for the devil and his angels. He wants you in heaven. He's just waiting for you to accept his offer. Now going on in chapter 31, verse 1, continuing, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. It's what Egypt was known for, chariots. Chariots that don't work well on the water. (laughs) But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. Yet He also is wise and will bring disaster. And note this, does not retract His words. God never blurts something out. He always says what He intends, and He intends what He says, and what He says happens. But He will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of the workers of iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men, not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out His hand, and he who helps will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and all of them together will come to an end. For thus says the Lord to me, 
as the lion or the young lion growls over its prey, against which a band of shepherds is called out, he will not be terrified at their voice nor disturbed at their noise. So will the Lord of hosts come down to wage war on Mount Zion and on its hill. Like flying birds or hovering birds, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will pass over and rescue it. Isaiah uses these two cool similes to describe the Lord's protection of Jerusalem. A growling lion, you know, bent over his prey. The shepherds would be Egypt or Assyria coming to help or attack the people of Israel. Works both ways. And the growling lion is there. Don't get close to the lion. It's going to bite your hand, man. Don't get near him. He also uses the simile of a, of a hovering bird, like, like a bird protecting its nest. We have this little birdhouse out on our porch. And these, these swallows just get crazy. They get nuts. We go out there, they're dive-bombing us. And I'm like, this is not relaxing for me. Why do we have a birdhouse here? You know, Because they're attacking and they're hovering. They're just watching. You go near my, my little chicklet there, I'm going to take you out. And that's what he's saying. God is hovering over Jerusalem. He's got his eye on Jerusalem. He's couched at Mount Zion like a lion protectively. And verse 6, he calls to his people, Return to him from whom you have deeply defected, O sons of Israel. You see, what they thought was diplomacy, God calls defection. And that's the problem. For in that day every man will cast away his silver idols and his gold idols which your sinful hands have made for you as a sin. And the Assyrian will fall by a sword not of man. And a sword not of man will devour him. So he will not escape the sword. And his young men will become forced laborers. His rock will pass away because of panic. And his princes will be terrified at the standard, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. And this is all history, gang. What he's prophesying now is about to come to pass. And you know the story. In fact, we're going to come up to the story, Isaiah 36 and 37, in a week or two. The story of the Assyrians encamped around there. And it speaks of that judgment of Assyria and God's going to wipe them out, a sword not of man. Actually, it'll be an angel of the Lord. But the context of this not only points to Assyria, and here's where we're going to, it's going to speed up here. It's not just Assyria, he's also now pointing to a situation further down the line, a time yet future. The context continuing on in chapter 32. He says, Behold, a king will reign righteously. It is not the king for Tophet. This is the real king. And princes will rule justly. A king will reign righteously. Princes will rule justly. So this alone tells us we're beyond Assyria. And we're beyond just God's protection in that day and age. We're now looking ahead to the time future when Israel will finally have, when Judah will have, the righteous king. Now the king here is Jesus. It's clearly and obviously Jesus. Who are the princes? Careful, it's a trick question. Who are the princes in verse 1? A king will reign righteously, and princes will rule justly. Any guesses? See, I knew you'd say that, which is why I said it's a trick question. We're not princes or princesses. We're priests. We're a royal priesthood. We are priests who will rule and reign with Him in His righteous kingdom. Right? That's what the Bible tells us. We're not princes. So who are the princes? The apostles. 
the apostles. Matthew 19, 27, Peter said to Jesus, Behold, we've left everything and have followed you. What then will there be for us? And he said, Truly I say to you that those that you who have followed me, and he's talking to the twelve, in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, the princes of the king. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake. Now we're getting to the priests. Now we're getting to the royal priesthood. They will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. So don't worry that you're not a prince. You get to be a priest. Which rocks. (laughs) We get to be part of the whole government. And we receive a wonderful, a great inheritance. Revelation 1, 5, and 20 talk about our royal priesthood about our ruling and our reigning with Him. But the thrones belong to the princes, who I believe, again, are the apostles. Behold, a king will reign righteously, and princes will rule justly. Each will be like a refuge from the wind and a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry country, like the shade of a huge rock in a parched land. And we've got to correct something else here, too. The word each. It shouldn't be each. Because it's literally written here in the common singular masculine form of this Hebrew word. And the Hebrew word is ish. Ish, which is the word for man. Man, or he. The King James does it real well here. Isaiah 32, verse 2. A man shall be as a hiding place from the wind and a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. In a weary land. A man. That's Jesus. Okay? He. He will be our refuge. He will be the shelter. He will be like streams. He will be the shade. It's not Jesus and the apostles. Hey, the apostles are good guys. And because they've left everything and they walked with Jesus, they have that right to rule as princes with Him. But it's not the apostles who are your shelter and your shade. It's Jesus Himself who is. Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, quickly as we finish out this chapter... Four kingdom issues to note. Four kingdom issues in chapter 31, and number one is the installment of the king. The installment of the king. When this happens, when Jesus comes in to rule and reign, verse 3 continues, then the eyes of those who see will not be blinded, and the ears of those who hear will listen, and the mind of the hasty will discern truth, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak clearly. What's happening here? The remnant of Israel is going to be healed of their blindness, of their deafness. Of what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 3.15, whenever Moses is read, the veil lies over their heart, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And so they will see clearly. They will hear clearly as Jesus is installed as God's righteous King. Panic. Hastiness is going to be replaced by peace in the presence of the great King. And things are finally going to be set right. And I cannot wait for things to be set right. Because it's just exhausting sometimes, you know, living in this world. When things are so unright. I don't even think that's a word. But it just tells tells you how upset I really am. It's just a tough world that we're living in. And it is not a good world. And it seems to be spinning more and more out of control, but God is going to set it right. There's going to be peace on earth when the king is installed. Psalm 
2 verse 1, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for Me, I have installed My King upon Zion, My holy mountain. And that's where we're at in this part of the prophecy. The King has been installed. Verse 5, No longer will the fool be called noble. Thank the Lord for that. Or the rogue... Wait a minute, where am I? Or the rogue be spoken of as generous. For a fool speaks nonsense, and his heart inclines toward wickedness, to practice ungodliness and to speak error against the Lord, to keep the hungry person unsatisfied, and to withhold drink from the thirsty. That's the fool. As for the rogue, his weapons are evil. He devises wicked schemes to destroy the afflicted with slander, even though the needy one speaks what is right. But the noble man devises noble plans. And by noble plans, he stands. Second thing to note, in the coming kingdom is the indictment of the fool. With the installment of the king comes the indictment of the fool. The Hebrew word for fool here, Nabal. And you know Nabal, that fool who had a ranch on Mount Carmel. Nabal. And his ranchers were out there and his herdsmen were out with the flocks and David's men were were kind of protective. In fact, it's the way it worked in those days that military guys oftentimes would provide protection and in response, those the herdsmen or planters or vineyard owners would, would give them a little food or, or some milk or something in exchange. Well, David's guys come up to Nabal's guys and they say, hey, can we, can we perhaps have a little something to eat? Can we camp out here for the night? Is that all right with you? And Nabal says, absolutely not. Get off my land. Fool. His name means fool. How would you like to go through life knowing that your name means fool? Well, he lived up to his name. And when David heard this, second, uh, 1 Samuel 25, David was furious. David gathers his men and they armor up and they're going to to take out Nabal in a bloodbath. And Abigail, Nabal's wife, hears about it and she rushes to David. Remember the story? And she she stops him and she intercedes and she uses gracious words and she brings food for all his men and she treats them well and, and David is impressed and he turns back. What happened to Nabal the fool? He died. How did he die? Well, Abigail said, do you realize how close today you came to having your head cut off by David? Nabal heard this, and the Bible tells us he had a heart attack, and ten days later he was dead. He had a heart attack, went into a coma, and then within ten days he had died. What a fool. Sunday was April Fool's Day. And there seems to be more and more reason to consider it a national holiday in this country. (laughs) Psalm 14 tells us the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. They're corrupt. They commit abominable deeds. There's no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And you know what? The fools and the rogues are getting louder today. <laughs> and they're not the vocal minority. It seems like they're becoming the vocal majority. 
They're loud, they're obnoxious, they're foolish, but gang, they're going to soon come face to face with God's installed king. And what then? All of the foolishness will be an incredible indictment. I mentioned Bill Maher earlier, and I just... This this is a guy who, and if you've seen any of his stuff, I mean, he, he is utterly offensive. But he's utterly offensive because he so foolishly goes after God. And claims all things related to God as stupid. And he laughs and he mocks and he scoffs. And, and, and you know what? I look at this guy and I think, oh, you have no idea what you're doing. Yeah. And then atheist groups. You know, yeah, I did say April Fool's Day should be Atheist Day. Because it's so foolish. But if that offends you, if that sounds politically incorrect, listen, the Word of God is filled with political incorrectness, words of warning against foolishness because He cares. He says it is absolutely foolish to say there is no God. And He says that clearly because people matter to Him. The Word says it all over the place. Psalm 10, verse 3, The wicked boasts of his heart's desire. The greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked... In haughtiness of his countenance does not seek God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. So with the installment of the king comes the indictment of the fool and, number three, the incitement of the complacent. Verse 9. Rise up, you women who are at ease, and hear my voice. Give ear to my word, you complacent daughters. Within a year and a few days, you will be troubled, O complacent daughters. Now, some of you ladies might say, well, Rick, that daughters is in italics, and I know that that means the word's not really there. Don't worry, O complacent is in the feminine form, so he's still talking to the women. (laughs) For the vintage is ended, and the fruit gathering will not come. Tremble, you women. Again, you, feminine form. Who are at ease? Be troubled, you complacent daughters. Strip, undress, put sackcloth on your waist, beat your breast for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the land of my people, in which thorns and briars shall come up. Yea, for all the joyful houses, for the jubilant, jubilant city, because the palace has been abandoned. The populated city, forsaken, hill and watchtower, have become caves forever, a delight for wild donkeys, and a pasture for flocks." The incitement of the complacent. The Lord is speaking through Isaiah to try and light a fire under the backsides of these complacent women in Judah. What's going on here? Judah is one year away from the siege of Assyria. And apparently, based on Isaiah's writings, we can tell the women of Jerusalem were still hosting garden parties. They were still strutting around with their finery and their new jewelry. And their makeup, and they're, they're just, you know, everything's going to be just fine. Just keep it fine. You know, if you went to Israel, you, you probably saw the burning house. Some of you remember that. It's a, it's a presentation. You go down inside, and there's this whole presentation of the burning of the temple in AD 70, and it's really literally in the spot of a high priest's or a priest's home that was in shot of the temple. And in that, in the media thing they do there, the woman who plays the wife of the priest is like that. She's just completely cannot believe the temple will ever fall. Cannot believe anyone is going to breach the walls of Jerusalem. It's not going to happen. So let's let's have a garden party. You know, let's enjoy ourselves. And this is going on. This is a mentality of especially the wealthy women inside of Jerusalem. They're just you know strutting their stuff. 
And this is not the first time the Lord has been trying to light a fuse underneath these ladies. Trying to get them to move. Trying to get them out of their complacency. Isaiah chapter 3 verse 16 says, The daughters of Zion are proud and walk with the heads held high in seductive eyes and go along with mincing or dainty steps and tinkle the bangles on their feet. Therefore the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs. That's great. <laughs> and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. You know? The Lord is calling His daughters to account along with His sons. So, ladies, you want equality, you got it. Because the Lord equally loves His daughters enough to say, wake up, girls. He says it to the sons all the time, by the way. Being a man reading the Bible is not always a comfortable place because we're always such idiots. You know, it's so clear. And we are always being called to wake up. But the Lord calls His sons and His daughters because He loves us both. And He says, ladies, now is the time for sackcloth and ashes, not for parties and pleasantries. He's trying to get them moving in faith. And He does the same thing for all of us when we get complacent in our churches. Paul writes in Ephesians 5.15, For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Wake up! Remember the old Keith Green song? Some of you who date back to the time of Keith Green and his music. The song he wrote called Asleep in the Light. But if the world is sleeping in the dark that it just cannot fight because we're asleep in the light. And it's just an incredible song calling us out of our doldrums and out of our complacency, incited by the Spirit of the Lord to get moving because the days are evil and there's not much time left. That's what he's saying to Judah. I believe that's what he says to you and to me tonight. And for Israel, the palace would remain desolate, verse 14, until something happens, verse 15. Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. The Spirit is poured out. The fourth and the final issue of the kingdom here is the intent of the Holy Spirit. The intent of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Spirit being poured out upon us, I don't think we're talking about Pentecost here. I think what we're talking about is the outpouring of God's Spirit on the remnant of Israel. Because He's talking to Israel. And he's describing the coming kingdom for Israel. And he says, until the Spirit is poured out upon us, Isaiah says, from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fertile field. And the fertile field is considered as a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness will abide in the fertile field. And the work of righteousness will be peace. And the service of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. Note what's happening here. There's a fruitfulness. When the Spirit is poured out on the remnant of Israel, the fruitfulness is both in nature, as well, in nature of earth as well as the nature of man. There's fruit happening all over the place. The earth is fertile and growing and beautiful and fruitful. And man is becoming fruitful as well. As you know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. The Holy Spirit is intent on cultivating these things. He's intent on cultivating these things in us, right? Romans 8, 6 tells us the mindset on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. 
Paul says in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so there will be, in the kingdom, in that day, these are the intentions of the Holy Spirit, gang, the repentance and rest and quietness and trust that we talked about on Sunday are all over the place in the coming kingdom. Verse 18 says, My people will live in a peaceful habitation in secure dwellings, and in undisturbed resting places. Just notice in verse 17 and 18, these words, peace, quietness, confidence, peaceful, secure, undisturbed resting places. This is what the Holy Spirit brings. One of the ways you know the Holy Spirit is really moving in your life is when you're at rest. When you're peaceful, even in the midst of storms, you're at peace. The peace that passes all comprehension comes from the Spirit of the living God. Now verse 19, suddenly, we have an insertion here. It will hail when the forest comes down and the city will be utterly laid low. That kind of shocked me because I'm coming off of verse 18. Secure dwellings, undisturbed resting places, and all of a sudden it's hailing! (laughs) And the forest is crashing around us and the city is laid low. What's he talking about there? The forest is Assyria and the city is Nineveh. Well, why? Why in this prophecy... Now listen, because this will explain the question I asked earlier. Why in this prophecy of something yet future does he suddenly pull back for one verse of what was happening um, happening immediately? He does it a couple of times. It has in our study tonight. He's talking about the future kingdom and all of a sudden, oh yeah, Assyria's going to fall. And then he goes back to the future kingdom. Why? The Lord, I believe, gang, is putting His stamp of proof on the whole prophecy of Isaiah. Let me explain this. Deuteronomy 18.21 The Lord says, You may say in your heart, How will we know the word which the Lord has spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Now, just nod if you're getting this. What the Lord is doing with Isaiah, Isaiah is prophesying something yet future, something there's no way that can be proven in his day. How do we know this glorious coming kingdom is really going to happen? The Lord says, well, you can trust my prophet Isaiah because he prophesied about Assyria too. And that did happen, didn't it? In 722 B.C., after that, I guess it was around 701, 702 B.C., when, when they came against Jerusalem and they fell, just like he said they would. And right after this, even in Isaiah's lifetime, Assyria fell and Nineveh fell. And so verse 19, you can read and say, oh, okay, Verse 19 happened as when a forest comes down and the city was utterly laid low. So we saw that happen to Assyria. So Isaiah is proven right. What does that tell you about all of chapter 32 in the coming glorious kingdom? It's going to happen. So verse 19 is proof immediately of what will happen in the future. If Isaiah is right on this one, He's right about the whole thing. And that's what I believe God is doing here. And then Isaiah concludes the whole thing with this wonderful pastoral picture. In verse 20, he says, How blessed will you be when you sow beside all waters who let out freely the ox and the donkey. And the ox and the donkey are going to be let out into pasture. 
It's an interesting way to end this beautiful picture of the kingdom. It's, it's very kind of just common, but it is peaceful, right? It's beautiful. Are you sowing beside the waters? What do you mean? Sowing portrays God's Word. Right? The sower went out to sow. And he sowed the seed which is the Word of God. Are you sowing the Word? Waters in the Bible is always an indication of the Holy Spirit. Are you sowing beside the waters? Are you in the Word of God? Are you walking by the Spirit of God? All the stuff we talked about hearing God earlier. Being in His Word. Waiting quietly to listen to the leading of His Holy Spirit. Are you sowing by the waters? If so, the Bible tells us the person who does this, Psalm 1 verse 3, will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. But here, let's connect this to Sunday. If you are sowing by the waters, if you are in the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, then guess what happens? The ox and the donkey are let out. What does that mean? It means the work's getting done. It means the fields are being plowed. It means the beasts of burden are about the burden of work while you are sowing by the water. That's how we get the work of the kingdom done. We sow by the water. We spend time in the Word. We spend time in prayer. We listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit, not the leading of man. We don't go down to Egypt. We go up to Jerusalem. And if we live our lives in this way, and I, you know... I feel sometimes like I'm just right on the edge of really getting this. And then life comes flooding in and I run down to Egypt. And the Lord keeps calling us back to rest in Him. Sow by the waters and I will take care of the rest. The ox, the donkey, they'll be let out. They'll get the work done. You just rest in the Lord. That's what He's calling us to. So Father, we choose to rest in You. Show us how this works, oh Lord. I pray, Lord, open up desire in our hearts and space in our lives for us to sow by the waters. To be quiet before You. To move with the intentions of the Holy Spirit. To be kingdom-minded people. Like Jesus, who is the perfect example of of that restfulness who, who accomplished the changing of the world in three short years. Teach us to hear you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.